Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Joining us today is Robert Tasker, MD, MBBS, who has written two editorials related to neurological issues in critical care, and both in response to separate papers. Dr. Tasker wrote the editorial ECPR for In-Hospital Cardiac Arrest, Lessons from Acute Neurotoxicity, in response to the Pediatric Critical Care Medicine article, Neurological Injury After Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation Use to Aid Pediatric Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation by Barrett et al., published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in 2009. His second editorial, Validating Serologic Biomarkers of Brain Injury for Cardiac Arrest Research, is a response to Topgen et al., Neuron-specific enolase and S100B are associated with neurologic outcome after pediatric cardiac arrest, also published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in 2009. Dr. Tasker is a senior lecturer at the University of Cambridge School of Clinical Medicine in the United Kingdom. Thank you for being with us today, Dr. Tasker. Thank you. Would you please um, start by giving us a brief summary of the article by Barrett et al. on the use of ECMO in pediatric CPR? Of course. In Cindy Barrett's article from the Children's Hospital of Boston and her collaborators in Salt Lake City and Ann Arbor, what they actually did was a database study from the Extracorporeal Life Support Organization, or ELSO, registry. And that has 116 members with 14 international members. So they selected from that registry uh, a certain number of cases, and the criteria that they used were any individual who had had extracorporeal membrane oxygenation used to support an episode of cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Patients had to be under 18 years of age, and they selected it from the whole of the 13-year period of ELSO. And the question that they were asking were, what are the risk factors for acute neurologic injury in children who are having extracorporeal support during cardiopulmonary resuscitation? Now, in their study, they found that there were 682 patients in the registry who they could include in their study. And they defined neurologic injury as anyone who had died as a consequence of brain death or anyone who had brain infarction or brain hemorrhage. And out of the 682 patients, they had 147 in this category. But let me just tell you a bit more about the 682 first. Overall, 62% of these patients died, and of those who died, most were because there was lack, was because there was lack of reversibility in their original state that got them onto ECMO, so their heart didn't get better. The duration of ECMO was for 77 hours, and the majority of cases, 73%, were 
were because of cardiac disease. There was 8% who had sepsis, 6% six, uh, with pediatric respiratory failure, and 5% neonatal respiratory failure. And they found that in this series, as I've mentioned already, 147 or 22% had acute neurologic injury. And in answer to their question, what are the risk factors for developing acute neurologic injury? The risk factors were A, being an older child when you went on to ECMO in the context of CPR, having a non-cardiac cause of your uh, event leading to CPR. So I presume that that is going to be the children with sepsis, pediatric respiratory failure. And then thirdly, metabolic acidosis at the time of going on to ECMO as part of CPR. So they found these three uh, risk factors, and that was the essential message of their paper. The duration of CPR prior to ECMO was not a risk factor? No. Uh, again, um, there are some problems here in that they were limited by the data set collected by the, on the ELSO registry. And so there's some sort of items of information that you would want, uh, like you know, how long were you on ECMO, uh, that just isn't available. Thank you. And would you also briefly summarize Topchian's article on biomarkers of brain injury following cardiac arrest? So Alexis Topchian is at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and most of the collaborators on the paper are from uh, the CHOP, uh, from varying departments, including pediatric neurology. So this was a prospective observational cohort study, and what they did was serial blood testing and compared the results with a neurologic assessment about five to seven days after an episode of CPR. They included patients uh, who had had a duration of, on average, 10 minutes of CPR. It was over a two-year period, and to be included in this study, uh, the individual needed to be bigger than three kilograms and less than 18 years of age. And in all, there were 35 cases. 15 of these individual di individuals died, and what the authors did was look at uh, three types of biomarkers in the blood and uh, look at the profile of these over the first three or four days and compared those who had either, either died or had poor, poor outcome with those who survived with favorable outcome. And the biomarkers that they were interested in were, one, neuron-specific enolase, this is a dimeric glycoprotein that's in neurons and neuroectodermal cells. S100B, which is a calcium binding protein found primarily in astroglia and Schwann cells. And PI1, which uh, is a um, plasminogen activator inhibitor, which is uh, from macrophages and endothelial cell uh, essentially. And the questions, or the question that uh, this group were asking was, what is the pattern of serum biochemical markers 
of central nervous system injury after cardiac arrest and how do these relate to outcome. And to cut a long story short, essentially they found that the neuron-specific enolase informed you about likely outcome at around 48 hours after CPR. It informed you about likely survival around 24 hours after CPR. S100B, the calcium binding protein, gave you information about likely survival around 48 hours after CPR. And PI-1 was not informative at all. Thank you, Dr. Tasker. How do these two articles inform our understanding of acute hypoxic brain injury? I I think they're, they're very interesting, and the two articles need to be read together. And uh, I'd also suggest that people read the editorials that go with them. But essentially, they're about a translation from the laboratory into the clinical arena. And they bring principles that we've learned from the models in the laboratory, which should help us better understand what's going on in practice. So as I discuss in the Barrett article uh, in my editorial, If we use the framework of cardiac arrest that we know from the laboratory that covers four phases, pre-arrest, a state of no flow when the heart isn't pumping, a state of low flow during CPR, and then the post-resuscitation period uh, with restoration of spontaneous circulation. Each of these phases represent part of a continuum. And what eCPR is doing hopefully, is converting that low low flow phase and using uh, the ECMO as a bridge into the resuscitation of a spontaneous circulation phase. Now, each of these phases exhibit a vulnerability, and we can, in the laboratory, sort of quite well characterize what are the pre-arrest factors that uh, injure the brain, what are the no-flow factors, what are the low-flow factors. So if we use that um, framework, we could think that in no-flow, the sort of areas of the brain that might be affected would be in a hierarchy from the hippocampus to the basal ganglia to the middle laminae of the cortex. And in the low-flow state, the parts of the brain that would be affected would be the watershed areas. Now, the way the authors have chosen to define neurologic injury, we can actually see that, in fact, what they're doing is characterizing the no and low-flow pattern, but more biased towards the low-flow. There is a little aside that I'd just like to mention, which is the acidosis. Uh, really reflects the pre-arrest build-up and it's probably representing a respiratory rather than a cardiac state. But that that aside, essentially what the authors have been able uh, to tell us is that the pattern of injury that they're seeing in their patients are informing or should inform us that either the pre-arrest state was too long or the no-stroke low-flow state was too long. Now, uh, going back to the question that you asked earlier, Margaret, about 
how long was the period of CPR before going on ECMO? We don't know the answer to that because it's not in the registry. But there are two articles that I refer to in the editorial that readers might want to look at, and they're the two articles from Taiwan that were published last year in the Lancet and Critical Care Medicine, a pediatric and an adult series of eCPR. Uh, and the periods, if you look at the figures in their papers, it looks as though the critical period is somewhere between 10 and 60 minutes of conventional CPR as being the critical period. What are the clinical implications from these two studies? Well, I think that uh, for me, uh, they really raise two questions. What are the pre-arrest factors that make going on to eCPR uh, too severe? And the second question, when is no or low flow period too long? And that's where the, the Topgian article becomes quite interesting because what their data is suggesting is that based on these biomarkers, we can have some assessment of prognosis somewhere between 24 and 48 hours after an episode of CPR. That then means that now, that then means that we could perhaps begin to design studies if uh, uh, more patients are going to go on to eCPR, where we start to look at significant changes in biomarkers the following day after resuscitation or 48 hours after resuscitation and help that to inform us whether or not the pre-arrest or no stroke low flow phase has been too long. I think this is a very interesting combination of papers. Uh, does the fact that being older uh, as a risk factor for neurologic injury for those children who underwent eCPR um, carry with it information about how we should select possible candidates for eCPR? I, um, it, it could do, although my feeling is that I, I think the age is really an indicator of the mechanism of leading to the cardiac arrest in that uh, 73% in, in the Barrett series were, had underlying cardiac disease. The older children were more likely to have either sepsis or respiratory failure leading to uh, their cardiac arrest. So I think probably age, acidosis, and these diagnoses are all linked together. So it's very difficult to tease out a single factor like age. Right. It's a combination of the factors. I, yeah. I think, as you said, the three of them are very often linked. What do you think are the um, next steps in research in hypoxic brain injury? Um, I'm sure most readers have probably uh, seen the May issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, uh, not, sorry, of Critical Care Medicine and the uh, uh, paper that's EPUB ahead of date, but both are from the PCAN study looking at uh, differences between 
cardiac arrest uh, out of hospital versus in hospital, and in hospital cardiac arrest all in children. Major studies, and I, I think that you know we know enough from the laboratory at the moment. What we need to do is try and translate some of what we've learned in the laboratory into the clinical sphere, selecting which patients ought to uh, have hypothermia, which patients ought to have eCPR. All of these things, you know, this, this is the next arena, really. Uh, I think that the PECAN initiative that readers will see in critical care medicine and pediatric critical care medicine uh, show that there is momentum here and there is sufficient interest in, in doing research in this group who have such a poor prognosis. So I think coordination between uh, various centers, initiation of therapies like uh, hypothermia probably is the leading one that uh, most people are going to consider at this stage. Do you have any final comments today for us? No, I, I think that the current issue of pediatric critical care medicine is uh, a jolly good read. I really enjoyed it this time around, and uh, I, I think it's an exciting time. As far as these two articles are concerned, I really liked both of them. I thought that they were both informative and um, I think that there's a lot more that can be done in terms of uh, exploring biomarkers and that we should be applying this to a whole range of fields that we deal with. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Robert. Okay, thank you. We have been speaking today with Dr. Robert Tasker from the University of Cambridge in the UK about two editorials he wrote relating to acute hypoxic brain injury following cardiac arrest in children, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, 2009. This concludes our podcast. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. A new email subscription service will let you know when new podcasts have been posted to the SCCM website. Visit www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. The Society has a variety of new and updated publications for dedicated critical care experts like you. These publications cover numerous topics, including rapid response systems, fundamental disaster management, pediatric critical care, coding and billing for critical care, critical care ethics, mechanical ventilation, and the critical care refresher. For more information on these and other publications, visit the online store at www.sccm.org. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM guest podcast editor for pediatrics. Dr. Parker is director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University in Stony Brook, New York. She also is a professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University Medical Center. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org.
or info at sccm.org.